welcome everybody back to another episode of the Fulfilling Destiny podcast. I am your host, Jan Rainey Packlet, and with me today are two new guests. Uh, with me today, we have another fellow intern, Jazz Lado, and we have Dr. Katrina Hirana. I hope I'm saying that right. Yes? Yeah. Hirana. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so. First, we'll save our MVP for last. So, Jazz, you want to introduce yourself really quick to our viewers out there? Hello, viewers. I am another intern at Fulfilling Destiny. Uh, just a little bit about myself. I am from San Diego as well. I graduated from UCSD in 2018. I am a pre-med student aspiring to be uh, working in PEDS, uh, working towards an MPH as well. But all fingers crossed, hoping for that. Um, yeah, and then our M our stellar MVP for today, Karana. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm Katrina. I'm from the DC area originally, Northern Virginia, and I got um, my MD and my PhD from Penn State. Um, I am currently an OBGYN, and I in Los Angeles, and I'm doing a fellowship in complex family planning for, which for people who don't know, is a like fel an, a fellowship extra training after residency, where you get um, extra experience with contraception and um, abortion services, as well as uh, like research experience and um, experience with like policy and advocacy. Oh, that's so official. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> a little fa a little fangirly moments. I was telling Yazawaga before he popped on, I was telling her, it's like, she's so cool. And I was absorbed vomiting oh, no. fangirling a little bit. <laughs> Hope she thinks it's a lot too weird. But oh, yeah. we were both very excited to have you on today. <laughs> I'm glad to be here, you guys. <laughs> yeah, so that's the reason why we have... Uh, do you want me to call you Katrina here, or would you want to call me Katrina? That's fine. Okay. <laughs> like with uh, with Doctor <laughs> Record, uh, I she, when we had our earlier meetings, uh, she's I called her Doctor uh, Record because it was just more appropriate. And she's like, no, call me Rachel. I was like, <laughs> a foreign concept. It's like if you have something that has a a suitable title to your name. I I want to respect you in all all those accounts, but <laughs> definitely Katrina. Oh, that's gonna. That's like biting in every little bit of like honorifics that's been ingrained into my blood. So it's gonna take some time. <laughs> it's that Asian culture. Oh yeah, especially that, especially that. Um, but yeah. So thank you, Katrina, <laughs> for, hopping, for hopping in. So the reason why we have you here today is because uh, Jazz reached out to you um, to talk about some of the ideas of reproductive justice. And the reason why is that we had plans for episodes to talk a little bit more about that, but we wanted to make sure we did it right. And we wanted to make sure we had a professional who could get our feet wet and to guide us on where should we start with these, you mentioned theories of reproductive justice. So it's going to be a little bit educational, which I expect I'm going to learn. <laughs> I got uh, the PDF that you sent us. And then we also, I also have the PowerPoint uh, open just for, for my personal viewing at the same oh, sure. time. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've had a, uh, 
you had a talk before or a conference before where you explained a little bit about that and jazz was in attendance and i wasn't there uh <laughs> might as well tell me too because you know it's uh a polarizing topic in in recent years so we're not trying to get too political about it or to what's the right word for it jazz help me out i'm englishing bad right now <laughs> my english is failing me help i think that everyone listening should remember to keep an open mind and really like listen throughout the podcast and um come at this idea with an open heart and it'll try and just view things from the perspective of what we're we're speaking on um because a, lo a lot of it is out of just trying to make sure that people who don't have the um, upper hand in this case, or the people that are in positions of power or are have more privilege than the people who um, are primarily affected by reproductive justice issues are um, m more likely to Maybe have like a change of heart or just, you know, have come from a place of understanding, if that makes any sense to anybody. <laughs> it, I also word vomit a lot, so it takes a lot for me to like get my thoughts out, so. Oh, yeah, no. I'm I, not as articulate as, as, as either of these two. I'm not used to being on podcasts either, so. Oh, no. Honestly, a lot of it is, the way that I've explained it to other people when it comes to talking is that a lot of it comes from a little bit of anxiety and it's just like, it just it's just going to have to come out and at some point all these tangents will make perfect sense but again to those who are listening like jazz said keep an open heart and an open mind and then like i said these are just introductions in no way that we are uh at least for, for fulfilling this in no way that we are claiming that we are experts that's why we invited someone who has who took the time to get their full education to shed some light that's what it is shed some light on what the services that OBGYNs could offer and then where OBGYN fits in this modern world and the many subsections that is out there that not a lot of people would know unless they really talk to an expert. That's where I was trying to go with but my English wasn't catching up to me up until now so we're just gonna go up into it. So uh, in your in your now that that's gone <laughs> now it's gone uh katrina uh how would you describe reproductive justice in the way that you see it yeah so reproductive justice is a pretty broad concept mm -hmm. um but i think that the the sort of like canonical definition of it is that it's a framework for thinking about the world um, that's based around three central principles. So the first one is that reproductive justice posits that people who are able to become pregnant, A, have the right to become pregnant if they mm -hmm. want to, have the right not to have children if they don't want to have children, and then if they do decide to have children, have the right to... Um, like raise those children in safe and healthy environments. The other sort of like corollary to those three things is that reproductive justice also is about sort of like 
free sexual expression for everyone, as well as gender equity. Um, and in and so like the thing I guess that's like different about it is that reproductive use justice uses a human rate rights framework to um, essentially like say that people have the right like the material right meaning like they should have access to like the the material goods um, to be able to like fulfill these different tenets. So for a woman who is infertile, that means that they should have access to fertility services. Or for a person who's pregnant and wants to carry a pregnancy, they should have access to an OBGYN if they want that, or a midwife if they want that, or a home birth if that's something that they're interested in, and if they're if it's safe for them to have that. Um, and that all of those things should be things that everyone should have access to regardless of socioeconomic status, race, and those kinds of things. Oh, okay, so that's what you mean by the material. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah. So it's not, <laughs> it's not just, uh, it's not, it's not just a, I can't English, geez. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, we're just going to move off of that. And where would you say that, well, since we're going to go a little bit in the history of OBGYN, uh, where, uh, where would you say that it started? Like, uh, the ideas of like planning, family planning, we'll just start from there. Uh, at what point is it started? I guess it depends on what you, where you want to start. So reproductive justice itself has like its own history Mm -hmm. that integrates a lot of like different things that have kind of been floating around. So we could talk about that if you want to, or we can talk about like the history of OBGYN, where stuff kind of fits in. The second one, since we talked about it, since we talked about it uh, in our earlier meetings when Jazz was around, where it originally started, uh, I, or originally started, uh, with, I met, you've mentioned like slave owners, and that's where the start, hmm, that's really hard to say, uh, that part of the history. And that's how OBGYN slowly started coming around. Forgive me if I'm wrong. Uh, that's what we talked about earlier. Save me. <laughs> <laughs> Save me uh, from save you. Save my face right now and what's left of my reputation. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about. Okay, let's talk about two things. So first, mm-hmm. um, the concept of reproductive justice. It's important to to like note and sort of like and sort of acknowledge that reproductive justice is a confluence of like human rights and like reproductive rights and sort of like feminism of women of color and where reproductive justice is a concept originated although now it's sort of exploded into a whole bunch of different concepts kind of executed in different ways is like in 1994 when the Clinton administration was trying to push health care reform through Congress um, one of the things that was happening during that time was that there was a like big conference that convened a bunch of different pro-choice groups 
Um, and a subsection of the, that pro-choice groups was a number of Black women thinkers, activists, scholars, who um, really like took issue with the fact that um, the 1994 sort of like health bill that they were trying to pass um, focused so much on choice. So pro-choice, like the right to access contraception and abortion, um, as opposed to all of the other pressures that have historically um, been pressures on women of color. So, you know, the right to have children safely, um, like the right to control their own fertility and not like sort of like be at the whims of doctors um, who like can forcibly sterilize them or put like an implant in their arm to prevent them from having children, whether they want to or not. And from laws that like essentially made those things legit, like, okay. And so mm -hmm. reproductive justice like grew out of that. Um, it was the, the very first time it was ever introduced was by those black women who were, um, who like were the thinkers in that kind of conference who were like, this is a limiting like it is limiting to think only about like re reproductive health and reproductive like rights in the context of like access to abortion and contraception and that we should be thinking a lot more widely because especially for women of color um, that isn't the issue, you know, like mm -hmm. everything else is the issue. Um, although like access to abortion and contraception is important, like that isn't the only kind of pressure that women of color are facing um, when kind of trying to decide like how to parent or how not to parent um, and then how to raise their kids in healthy environments. So mm -hmm. that's sort of like the, the, the start of reproductive justice and, the, and then the context for that sort of like spinning off is what you referred to, which is like the fact that um, the history of OBGYN is in the United States is incredibly, like, deeply problematic. Mm -hmm. um, and so you kind of mentioned the, the fact that, like, it, it sort of started, like, with experimentation on slave women. Mm -hmm. um, and that's absolutely true. So I think the, the I guess the place to start is um, the the father of modern gynecology. Did we talk about that when we, we last talked? Yeah, we did. We did briefly, but I forgot his name. So it's her name. You gotta have to remind me a little bit. Uh, yes, sorry about that. Yeah, no, you're okay. <laughs> so it, yeah, so this is a little, since we're gonna be talking about just small disclaimer here, it might be a little bit uncomfortable to hear for some of my, or some of our viewers out there. Just remember, this is just context. It's history and, you know, history is something that we can learn from. So whatever we do now, it's something that we do need to be in my life. Not everything that we have now came from happy, humble beginnings. Sometimes it's a little bit darker and chaotic and a little traumatizing for some of those out there. So just like I said, keep an open heart and open mind and just it's history, it's context. Okay, sorry, Katrina, please continue. <laughs> Um, that's a good disclaimer because a lot of this stuff can be really triggering. It mm -hmm. is like a deeply traumatic history and it's something where like if you are an OBGYN of color, if you're somebody who's invested in like justice, if that's why you went into medicine, 
and it can be really tough to like feel like you're kind of continuing this legacy so for those of you who are thinking about going into medicine for those of you who are thinking about going into science public health any of that stuff one of the things to sort of like wrestle with responsibly is the fact that a lot of these institutions harm people um, mm -hmm. and especially harm people of color, especially harm um, like socioeconomically like disadvantaged communities. And that's something that we really have to work to rectify. Mm -hmm. um, where do you want me to start? <laughs> uh, we'll start with the, like I said, that one doc, like I said, the, the experimentation of how we went from that and how it's still used now we mentioned it before that even now some of the techniques are used and like i said it's a broad range of techniques uh those still stem from like you said archaic models from this original person we'll, we'll put that lightly right oh, yeah from the slave era yeah from the slave era so we, yeah. we could start there Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, are, are you sure? <laughs> All right. <laughs> like what? It's, it's just for history context sake, and we're no in any way sugarcoating it to upset, especially people of color, especially the Black community who are, whose history is very, very explicitly detailed in our history books. Uh, but for this, this is a little bit more obscure. I definitely didn't hear about it in my history books about this specifically so when you brought it up in our talks it's like oh i can't swear here <laughs> oh crap <laughs> like this was the thing so like i said well, let's get our feet wet we're treading lightly but you know history context sake so go ahead doctor okay so um okay so J. Marion Sims is commonly referred to as the father of modern gynecology. He graduated, he, so he's from the South. He graduated from, I think, Jefferson University, uh, a like med school in um, Philadelphia, and then moved back down to the South, to South Carolina, to set up his own business. Um, when he was, when he was like starting to become a doctor, starting his own practice, um, the definition of like what a doctor was was really different from what it was now. So he kind of did a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. um, he like took care of plantation owners, kind of like working as basically a primary care doctor. He would set bones for people, you know, he would help people deliver babies. It was like a little bit of like all of these different things. Um, um, but then one of the things that he realized, so, so he... One of the things that very commonly happened um, during childbirth, especially to slave women, um, mm -hmm. are, were big tears um, like in the vagina during delivery of a baby. Right. And this happens still to people, but it happened back then for like more often and mm -hmm. like bigger tears for several reasons. Um, one is that like, especially for slave women, they had really poor nutrition because right. they weren't being fed very well um, and were essentially just kind of eating whatever things were left over from mm -hmm. the plantation owners. Um, they tended to have children more 
frequently and also at a younger age than um, white women and then like weren't given the time to sort of recover from like in the postpartum period Mm -hmm. and so nobody would sort of stitch up these tears after they delivered and then when they would heal essentially what would happen is that you would like as things would heal because like your bladder and your vagina and your anus are so close to each other Mm -hmm. sometimes little channels would form between the vagina and the rectum or the vagina and the um and the bladder and so Mm -hmm. these were called rectovaginal so from the rectum to the vagina or vesicle vaginal from the bladder to the vagina fistulas Mm -hmm. and so you can imagine that that's super debilitating. Um, Essentially, like you're a woman, like going about your life, like trying to do your job, trying to do the, like trying to take care of your children and you're leaking either fecal matter or urine into your vagina constantly. Yeah. And I can imagine that could be a a literal cesspool of really not so great stuff. Infections, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming. And oh yeah. That sounds traumatic. Like it, it sounds like after birth, like in modern times, is already hard as it is, and having to oh goodness, uh, adding that into the the mix, that just sounds extremely traumatic. Not only physically but mentally. Yeah, and yeah. This is back in the this is back in ye well, jokingly ye olden times where all you had was. You don't have medication for that, really. Mm-mm. You just have a leather belt that you bite down on and whatever natural, if there, if there even was enough, like a high dosage of a painkiller at the time, which I don't think there was, really. I just mm-hmm. suck. So what would happen in these cases? Um, uh, if they were to go about their day, say, working in the fields with these pairs, um, would it just follow them for the rest of their life or does that cut their life expectancy a lot shorter? So unless you get an infection from a vesicovaginal or rectovaginal fistula, like that's just the way that your body healed after right. like a really huge insult after a big tear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can have, you definitely have an increased like risk of infection, but also from just sort of like a, you know, like, personal standpoint you know like you can see that it would be annoying on a day-to-day basis it could be embarrassing on a day-to-day basis potentially Mm -hmm. like stigmatizing and if you are somebody who's like partnered it could make you like less likely to want to have sex like there are a whole lot of other like things that are kind of like the fallout from having a fistula Mm -hmm. and so there were slave women walking around with fistulas. There were white women walking around with fistulas. And so J. Marion Sims saw this as an opportunity to get See how it works. rich. Yeah. Well, to, to like oh, ostensibly an opportunity to fix a big problem. Right. Um, And so he decided that what he wanted to do, like to sort of like make his stamp on medicine was to pioneer a surgery to to close a rectovaginal fistula. So close that fistula that happens between like the rectum and the vagina. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but like surgery at that point was like such an early sort of like concept right, right. that there weren't a lot of techniques that you could use to even like look in the vagina to suture the vagina right, and then right. to like help figure out healing mm-hmm. and so then the question is how so then how do you pioneer a surgery like how do you come up with like develop a surgical technique and the answer in that time mm-hmm. was that you <clears throat> borrowed on loan slave women with fistulas oh. and then you operated on them until you figured out how to close a fistula oh that's mm. that's that's pretty awful well yeah it's putting them out that's pretty awful mm-hmm. you would keep so we're just gonna like just not get too descriptive but it's just it could just be one person right or one woman uh who would be checked on several times to see if it worked and it's not just multiple or is it multiple and then trial and error in this case right so it's hard to know like i i don't know that it's well known exactly how many women he operated on i think Mm -hmm. like he he basically like got literally like got women on loan from their owners set up a little field hospital and just like started to develop tools to look inside the vagina started to develop like suture material like different things to like figure out how to complete this surgery mm-hmm. um there are three women um who were named in his writings um and their names are betsy anarka and lucy mm-hmm. um and these women were operated on upwards of like tens of times like 10 times 20 times oh. um, and wow. and i think like even more egregiously I know that you like alluded, you were like asking if, if there was like painkillers at the time. Yeah. Um, anesthetics, like inhaled anesthetics mm-hmm. had just kind of like come onto the scene and, and like certain like opiate medications had just come onto the scene. Um, however, um, Dr. Sims chose not to use anesthesia um, when performing these surgeries on these oh women. my goodness <laughs> i just want to pop in and say like this was all done without any pain medication or anesthetics yeah right? that's yeah that's mm, that's oh that's really awful i mean i'm already a wimp when it comes to like getting dental work done what more something went a little bit more personal a bit more invasive especially down there with no anesthetic that's tens of like tens of dozens of times that's he said well i can't say a lot of expletives here but for our viewers are you i i think they could agree with me what a jerk Mm -hmm. oh yeah oh yeah were hysterectomies also a common practice for him or was that was was that a later so hysterectomies, I don't, honestly, like C-sections, hysterectomies, like those kinds of invasive surgeries are, in, from my understanding, not things that were yet developed. Okay. Um, oh, I gotcha. Mm-hmm. 
Leslie was a little, yeah, it was a little early for that. He was sort of like the pioneer of like vaginal surgery, like literally Mm -hmm. until Marion Sims, like we didn't have a way to like look into a vagina because like you can imagine, I mean, like, you know, like it's, it's inside and everything's (laughs) like tucked in. It's just like a collapse. It's a potential space, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. literally just like a tube of muscle and tissue. Mm -hmm. And so like, how do you look into a space like that without, without having a, someone to model it for you? And unfortunately, it would be someone on loans, a slave on loan. Mm-hmm. That's quite unfortunate. Um, all right. So after that, did he, find, did he accomplish what he was going to do? He found a suitable way to do it, I'm assuming, that's where this history is going right so that's his claim to fame um after like dozens of surgeries on like individual slave women he discovered a way to close a fistula um i think that the slave woman who it eventually worked on was um lucy Mm -hmm. who i think he operated on like the the most um and then he wrote it up because Mm -hmm. like you guys you guys all know you know like we make a big discovery we write it in a medical journal we send it off to the medical journal and like that was his claim to fame people were like oh that's amazing like you figured out how to solve this like terrible problem and he like rose to fame like astronomically he was like the personal like doctor of an empress um he like started um, the first women's hospital in New York City. Um, wow. And he, like, was, I, I mean, the, up until just a few years ago, there was a statue of him, like, in the middle of, like, Central Park. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> because he was just this, like, hero, father of modern gynecology. Like, we still use instruments that he developed. Like, there's a retractor called the Sims Retractor, that we like use during surgery to look inside the vagina. Like we're still using innovations that Mm. he came up with by operating on the bodies of black women who arguably never benefited from his experimentation on them. Mm -hmm. So his services after he was done or he figured out the aha moment where he figured out how mm-hmm. to do it uh has i don't know if you know since uh has his services also been extended to uh slaves at the time or was it only just to uh white women in power at the time like was did he pick and choose or was his services offered wild uh widely because, like you said, the slave or black women or black slaves at the time, they got pregnant younger. They had more chances of being pregnant and having babies in comparison to their uh, slave owners at the time, female um, white women at the time. So I was wondering if um, if he offered some of those services also to his, to slaves as well, or did he just exclude them out? from his clientele pool. You mean like after? Mm-hmm. After, after he figured out how to do it. Oh, you're I nodding. I think you know the answer to that. 
I don't know, like just, you know, wishful thinking, um, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, it's interesting because when you like read his writings, mm-hmm. he like makes this big point about like, oh, I always like ask like my, my like slave patients for consent before like doing these surgeries. But also like, what does meaning, like what's informed consent when you like have a patient that you own? Like, yeah, the- informed consent isn't a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing to the other thing too is that he um I'm trying to remember he he used to train people in his like train other doctors in his like little like hospital where he he, the his like hospital on his plantation um and one of the doctors that he trained was a man named I think Nathaniel Bozeman who eventually became one of his rivals and I and one of the things that Bozeman said is that after like this discovery he essentially stopped caring for slave women um and i think another thing to sort of like know is that um both in the past and now like obviously women are really sensitive about like exposing themselves down there like Mm -hmm. like i know as an obgyn and it can be super sensitive that women are coming from a lot of different places that there can be a lot of trauma Mm-hmm. sort of associated with a pelvic exam mm-hmm. um however he never I, I think that you can probably imagine this never really adhered to sort of like the common like standards of decency with um the slave women that he operated on mm-hmm. whereas like when he did exams on white women he like would talk about like you know going under the skirt never really exposing them and he used anesthesia with them um uh, yeah that's yeah i could imagine modesty rules apply to mm-hmm. people of privilege and not 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 others that's really unfortunate and mm-hmm. it is I even now, like as for me, it it's still very awkward um, to even go to have pelvic exams, especially even if it is uh, a female doctor. Like mm-hmm. I know, like my like I always like avert my eyes, or my cheeks would be flamed red. It's like oh god, like I know she's like she is someone who's seen hundreds of these at a time. It's nothing to be embarrassed about, but I know that I do, and it's just. Mm. That to think that back in the day that there's just no rules applied and it's we benefited something from something traumatic and it's not pretty it really isn't pretty uh, after that so what other than that is uh his work is still used now like you said there's instruments and tools that were named after this let's say infamous doctor <laughs> Uh, do you think there are other ways that we could combat this or do you think we still need to use these archaic models on how to help women who suffer from these tears or uh, like injuries from birth or from other uh, other issues that come up during pregnancy do you think we'll still do you think we will still rely on them these old models Uh I mean, like, it's less that they're models and more that they're surgical techniques. Mm-hmm. 
So there are things that you learn in training and there are instruments mm-hmm. that you still work with in training. And part of the reason is there are probably, I mean, like there are really only so many ways to visualize the inside of the vagina and we discovered some of them or developed some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, will we always use a Sims retractor? Um, I don't know. Um, but one of the things that some OBGYNs are starting to move towards is um, changing the names of retractors that, or mm-hmm. changing the names of like female body parts even um, that are named for people who discovered them. Oh. Um, and right. so like, so the Sims retractor, for example, like goes inside the vagina on the back side of the vagina, like towards mm-hmm. the rectum. And so some people have started to call it a posterior retractor, which just means that we place it on the backside of the vagina. Like right. That feels, that feels better. And you're still using the instrument that he developed, but at the same time, you're like taking away the sort of like nod to him in your usage of it. Mm-hmm. So those are things that are, I guess, in the works. Um, Obviously, there are like innovations too to the surgical surgical techniques that he's pioneered, so that we're kind of moving away from exactly what he learned, what he like discovered, I guess, to help close fistulas. Um, and in general, especially in the United States, the incidence of like rectal vaginal fistulas are lower at this point because of a lot of different reasons. So, um, I mean, we're doing the surgery less, but mm-hmm. I. I mean, like, I think that a lot of the innovations that he unfortunately came up with are, at this point, like, pretty ingrained in, in, um, in our practice. (laughs) Do you think this is why more, um, women of color or people who are just in, in general, just having, um, who are pregnant and, and, looking to give birth are leaning towards more holistic options or like midwives and things like that and like non typically like non-western um settings for birth is that why that that's becoming more of like i would not say like a trend but it's becoming more of a an accepted option and more looked at as we continue as you know as the years go by i feel like it's in now there are more people choosing to go holistic versus like, or at least considering holistic options versus giving birth in a hospital? Um, I think, I think they're all sort of parts of the same problem. And this is like why having the reproductive justice frame is really helpful when you're starting to think about the trends that are happening and like, where people are deciding to give birth. Um, When we talk about sort of the history of birthing in the United States um, for black women, uh, as well as like, honestly, many white women, um, up until OBGYN was kind of like carved out by medical doctors into its own medical subspecialty, Mm -hmm. babies were birthed like the people who attended births like provided prenatal care provided postpartum care were granny midwives and so these are like women who were essentially like descendants of slaves from 
Africa who were stolen from their countries where they were like people who in those countries were like medical professionals or birth attendants or things of that nature. And so they took essentially like knowledge that was passed down to them and practice it in the United States in their new sort of like context. And so like they were the people that, you know, took care of pregnant women. They were the people that helped pregnant women give birth and they were the people who like delivered babies. Um, and the, I think the thing to sort of like know is that uh, as, as sort of like the American Medical Association and sort of like codified what medicine was in the United States, part of that in, included a huge push to take obstetrics away from midwives um, mm -hmm. and like move towards sort of like hospital births, um, like OBGYNs were the people who like should be taking care of you when you're having a baby. Mm -hmm. um, and so like two things kind of like came out of that, the sort of like outlaw of like the practice of granny midwives or lay midwives, which, which is what they're also sometimes called, um, as well as the um, essentially like making abortion illegal. Um, because that was also something that a uh, service that midwives would provide. At the time, right? And was this like more of a finance, was there like a financial reason behind this or like a scientific reason? Like what, why did they decide to do this? <laughs> You're shaking your head. <laughs> I know, I, for, I forget that I'm on a, like a podcast. Oh, no, um, no, 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 it's okay. That's why we're putting it, uh, we're just, I'm just narrating what you're doing because I think it's it's a little funny. <laughs> oh my gosh! So she she shook her head no at the first, uh, the first bit that Jazz said, which was uh, sorry, what was it, Jazz? Um, I was wondering if there was a specific reason that the the AMA pushed to um end midwifery. If it was like a financial reason, or if it was a there's like a scientific reason, like maybe it was like quote unquote more dangerous. Uh, um, okay. I think I know the answer to this, but I would just. You want to hear from her. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the professional. Yes, please. I think I think the answer is exactly the answer that you think it is, which is that the um, AMA and sort of like medical professionals in general were carving out what they wanted their practice to be mm -hmm. in and like ostensibly like said that it was for safety, said that it was because like, you know, babies were dying outside of the hospital, women were dying outside of mm -hmm. the hospital. But, like, truly, they were concentrating their, like, financial power. Um, having a baby in a hospital is more expensive. Mm -hmm. You have, like, more staff. You can pay right. the staff. Um, I guess there are some arguments to be made about sort of, like, sterility. Um, there can be arguments made about, like, making it more comfortable because also they were moving towards like using it like anesthetics for like birth um right and like at the same time sort of like pioneering like cesarean sections and things like that um but i, I think that we all know yeah, I, I think plainly we all know but since you didn't mention sterilization I, i'm looking at the powerpoint that you sent us a couple weeks a couple weeks back um did, having hmm, sterilization. 
I don't even know how to trans- translate to this. It's number 23 on your PowerPoint slide that you sent us. Uh, I don't know how to like slide into that. But like you said, it's uh, carving out this specific field in order to, I guess, consolidate more financial power, putting it lightly. So what would that mean for someone who is poor and who needs these like these accesses like to prenatal care a doula midwife or say everything is healthy and fine then something goes wrong they're rushed to the hospital they are put in the you know it, emergency c-section and stuff like that what would that mean to someone who's poor or suffering through housing insecurity um yeah i guess do you mean like what did it mean back then? So, so yeah. a lot of those things like what do you mean back then? Yeah. So a lot of those things weren't there back then. Mm-hmm. Like this is really just like think about like wild wild west, like <laughs> dirty hospitals. Like yeah. this is like pre understanding of like sterilization, meaning like cleaning, like cleaning, mm-hmm. like antiseptic, like cleaning of things. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess um, I answered my own question that it's just it's a death sentence then for some so yeah so re so previously it certainly was um I think like part of the like move towards like consolidation of like obstetrics and gynecology as a field like high like governed by doctors um is is essentially that I think I think that you're alluding to it but like it made it inaccessible to poor people of color because mm-hmm. like most OBGYNs, all OBGYNs at the time were white men, and most of them weren't taking care of women of color. And so by outlawing lay midwives, granny midwives, essentially what they did was they drove granny midwives like into the shadows where they like often continue to perform the duties that they had performed for their entire lives and for generations. Mm-hmm. Um and essentially like made it a like difficult for black women to obtain the care that they wanted um made it essentially like inaccessible for black women to give birth inside inside hospitals and then like made it illegal for them to seek care from the people who had cared for them for centuries this seems very intentional it's so intentional. Uh, so because, like you said, um, they were turned away from people that could care for them, who had expertise at the time, and then obviously they couldn't afford to go to these hospitals at the time. Uh, did that just, well, I'm trying to think of not necessarily insulate it for Black slaves at the time. Talk about a little bit, a little farther, farther along the timeline. Uh, where people of color at the time dissuaded from having babies or just so they could uh just so they could survive on their own what i mean by that is just like uh to keep costs down uh as like as a person or who are providing for other family members where people of color dissuaded from having a family that's what i was trying to say at the time um I think that gets at like a really central point. So 
kind of like taking it back to reproductive justice, you know, how the first tenant is like the right to have a child if you want to have a child. Um, and then the third tenant is the right to parent that child in a safe and healthy environment if you do want to have a baby. Um, and so like, I get, I'm sorry, my husband just walked into the room and was very distracting. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> no worries. Um, okay. So we were talking about reproductive justice and we were talking about like what what happened to black women right who Mm -hmm. who are trying to have yeah so Mm -hmm. in general like did did what they did they did the practices and policies that were in place dissuade black women from having families I think like ultimately the answer is no but um I think the thing that's like maybe more important and sort of like the central theme that we sort of keep coming back to is that um, policies that policies were put in place to limit to that sort of decided who was allowed to have a family. And I think that like, that's sort of what it comes down to. You, you mentioned sterilization a little bit. We've talked Mm -hmm. a little bit about like, almost like intentionally intentionally removing like granny midwives lily midwives Mm. like from the picture um and sort of circumscribing who people could go to for care and what kind of care they could get like you know like the whole idea of returning somebody's menses if they're like early in their pregnancy um with herbs or things like that was something that became illegal once OBGYNs got their hands on it um and so I guess, I don't know. I don't think I'm answering your question very well. Um, <laughs> it's just, uh, the only reason why I, was, I brought it up is that this is just from my perspective and the way that I see it, and I could be completely wrong, right? Is that if I can't afford the services, right, prenatal care, at, or like in, from a little bit past Dr. Sims' darker, darker history and a little bit closer to modern history, so say like, 1950s onwards, right? Let's mm-hmm. put it to that time frame, 1950s and onwards. If I couldn't afford to see a doctor who could give me that care for, say, my unborn child, and I couldn't get prenatal care, or you know, I don't have the, I don't have a emergency fund on the side in case something had happened to me in the hospital as I was giving birth, did that dissuade women? or some women out there from having children because of just those barriers in place? Like, were they dissuaded from their doctors or dissuaded from just having families in general because it was just too much, too much work, too much money? Uh, Yeah, that's what I was trying to go at. But I don't know if there was a a straight answer for that, really, because it's it's very complicated. Yeah, I mean, like... I don't know that I can speculate on sort of like the motivations that people have for like Mm -hmm. deciding to become pregnant or not deciding to become pregnant. Um, But I think like one, I think that, I guess the point that I was trying to make is that like, especially for women of color and like black women in particular, although like there are examples of this happening for like native women for 
um, Latinx women. I mean, Mm -hmm. even as recently as like a month ago, um, where, where the government or, um, uh, like, or government officials or public policy, um, or the court system dictates, like, decides who should be able to have a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's problematic. And, right. And so, like, the the whole, like, idea of eugenics and kind of, like, decide, and, like, there being, like, a master race and, like, specifically wanting people from the master race to reproduce, whereas, like, everybody else, like, should only have a family if sort if the mastery sort of like decides that that is like useful for them is like what I feel like drives a lot of policy decisions even now so I mean the way that that manifested um like during the civil rights era was Mm -hmm. forced sterilization Mm -hmm. um have you heard of like Fannie Lou Hamer or the Ralph sisters or anything like that no actually i've like i said history like whatever history showed me i think it's very intentional and some of those mm-hmm. bits have been uh thrown thrown off of my curriculum so uh if you can shed some light on on those unique individuals what happened so this is forced sterilization right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so fanny lou hamer is a like was like a huge like advocate for voting rights um she she was like an amazing activist an amazing speaker um and essentially like somebody who was like instrumental in eventually getting the voting rights act like passed like with some of her sort of like foundational activism um she had sort of like came to her activism in a roundabout way um she like was the child of a sharecropper, um, like had some pain, like some, what she like called like knots on her stomachs. Uh, um, People think like now probably she had some fibroids, which are sort of like benign growths of nut muscle that people can like grow on their uterus. It can cause pain, it can cause bleeding. They're not comfortable. Um, And so she went to the doctor to get them looked at um, and they told her that they could take care of it. And she went for surgery and she woke up and realized that she had gotten a hysterectomy without her consent. Ooh, that's um, not good. Yikes. Which was like incredibly devastating to her because she mm-hmm. had really wanted to have children. Um, oh, no. And so this is something that like that she, I mean, like her fertility was stolen from her and her right to mm-hmm. decide whether to have a baby or not and when was stolen from her um and so like it it was so common back in those days that it was called the mississippi appendectomy because like appendectomies are one of the most common types of surgeries and Mm -hmm. like back in that time like back in that era we were taking so many women's uteruses like without their permission that like eventually there was like a groundswell um of kind of like out out war and an upcry against it um and that's resulted in a few different like safeguards that um that like basically women have to sign when they have to 
when they decide that they want a hysterectomy or if they want like a tubal ligation. That they have to, that they are informed that there is a chance of infertility? Um, that they are informed that it will make them sterile. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So that's now, now that there's something for that now, but it comes from something that was, a, again, <laughs> pretty, pretty traumatic and not cool. And it's sad. But yeah oh, there's no segue for that it's just that's just my reaction it's like wow the funny thing is is that I still think that it isn't like just because it happened I feel like that that didn't go away I feel like a lot of women sign up for hysterectomies and don't know um when I was in that conference at CY conference I've heard like a couple different speakers they're like oh I knew I had a mom or a an aunt and a relative, a friend or something, um, that they didn't know that they signed up for a hysterectomy because they didn't speak the same language or like there was a language barrier or that there was some kind of um, misinformation where they didn't know that that's what they signed up for. And I was just like, even in modern medicine, these problems are still relevant. And Mm -hmm. more, I would feel like it's more insidious because you think, oh, you know, everything is better now, but it, in reality, it's not. It's just being presented in a different way. Yeah, that's one, that's, that's another thing to think about. Even in yeah. language, I, like, that's not even just including language, yeesh. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Katrina. I'm just going to run to the bathroom really quick. Sorry. Oh, yeah, no, that's fine. Perfect. <laughs> it gives me and Jess like, give our reaction <laughs> to what we have just learned, like, goodness. Oh, don't forget to meet yourself. There you go. Uh, otherwise, you'd be hearing a lot more. <laughs> uh, thank Jazz. It's a lot. It's <laughs> I think that it's it's crazy to hear all these um, where reproductive justice like really came from. Because when mm-hmm. I feel like when a lot of people think of what reproductive justice is, they're just like. Oh yeah, you know those like vagina hats. You know what I mean? Like they think it's yeah, it's, really fun. it's like, like fun in games, but it's yeah, like this very like feminist movement, and it, it is, it is a feminist movement, but it's more of like there is a lot of history in it, and especially for for Black women, it's. I feel like now you know with the like you know I forgot what the movement's called, like the Pink Vagina Movement or something like that. Like that movement, I feel like there's a lot of erasure of Black women. Um, and they're the ones that really started this conversation in the first place. And I feel like learning the history and learning mm-hmm. what reproductive justice is all about um, in the context of it is super important in order mm-hmm. to undo all of the, not necessarily undo all the trauma, but try and move from it and, and mm-hmm. do better. It's, yeah, like, like you said, it's something to think about because like I mentioned to well, both you Katrina and everyone else here is like I did not know about that part of our history and then like you said there are those who look at this movement at a very superficial level and they're like oh you know these are just people just talking about their vaginas like shut up like go away it's like no 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 like this is something very this is something that is important and it stems from a traumatic history and that's something that can't go away if we're like if we're going to put it in context to other horrors of history, we don't forget it. We always bring it up. So we say like 9-11, we will always remember 
9-11. For those who were alive at the time at any part of the world, we will always know it. But when it comes to history like this, oh, sorry, your phone went off. And when it comes to history like this, not everybody remembers or not everybody knows some of those darker parts of our of history at the time, which is very unfortunate. And then it puts people like me or even others like me who don't know, it's just like, ouch, like, wow, this is something that happened. How did I not know about this sooner? You know, it puts, it, it's kind of like, why was I blindsided to this knowledge? I should have known that as someone who's a woman who would like to think of planning and have children in the future. And then knowing that this comes from something very traumatic is very unsettling. It's a little unsettling, but like I said, we've got to keep an open heart and open mind about it. Just, it, it hurts. It really hurts. Yeah. It's almost like you feel a little guilty because you're just like, I remember yeah. when I was younger and then I would just, I would, you know, I've always been like, oh, you know, feminism is important and, you know, being able to, the right to choose is important. And I've, that's always something that I believed in. But I think when I was younger, I really didn't understand the scope of what that meant. Mm-hmm. And as I got older and did my own research and I was just like, oh, yeah. like, like everything really started to kind of click and connect of, of. Um, the issues of like race and the mm. issues of poverty and the issues of, of um, reproductive justice. I feel like all of these things started to connect for me and for me to be like, I I was just like guilty because I was like, why didn't I know this earlier? Like, why yeah. did I say some of the things that I did? Why did I make some of the choices that I did? Or, mm-hmm. you know, or said some of the things that I did or like made that, fun like, of the people. My beliefs. Like, what, yeah, like when mm-hmm. it went against my beliefs and I didn't intend for it to, but it's just because like I didn't know and it's I don't know I I feel like the more education you receive on this kind of thing or like the more that you just kind of throw yourself it the more it becomes clear that we need to be able to move forward from this like we need like it is (laughs) for like as as a woman and as a person of color and as an ally to other marginalized communities like we need to be advocating for this you know our life yeah it's uh it's a it's a lot so, yeah it's a lot <laughs> it's a lot so i mean not not to make this like a downer of an episode but it's just something to of a downer of an episode it's, it's a little bit of a downer of an episode but it's no i think it's like hopeful because it's i feel like a lot more people are talking about it yeah i feel like especially now there's a lot we're opening up the conversation a lot more and there's a lot more people in like the medical like a lot of more medical professionals that are having these conversations like how can we better serve marginalized communities how can we serve Mm -hmm. um different people of different cultures and um i wonder if uh katrina if you can talk about that like how has modern medicine now moved into addressing these issues um, reproductive justice and increasing not just the access accessibility to care but like um, increasing the quality that people are receiving because I know that that's also a big part of reproductive justice is not just getting or increasing the access of care to everybody but making sure that everybody has quality. Um, quality yeah of care because I know that that's also been a huge is- issue especially with um um, particularly with, with um, like birthing and black mothers have like such a high mortality rate and mm-hmm. we are in a first world country so n- none of this making sense <laughs> how are we trying to be better and um, Im- improve upon that and address these issues 
Mm-hmm. Also, another um, question is trust, like rebuilding trust in oh, communities yeah. like um, marginalized communities, the Black community, Latinx, Filipinx, like those communities. Rebuilding trust, giving good quality, and increasing access. How has that changed in modern OBGYN, at least in your perspective, or what have you seen in your experiences lately? Yeah, I mean, that's an incredibly loaded question. Because yeah, it's still, <laughs> it's just been a loaded episode. Um, <laughs> because there's some hopefulness <laughs> for, for this bit. Well, I mean, like, I think that, at, like, so when I was deciding on the medical specialty that I wanted to go into, um, I don't know if we talked about this yet, but like, I had a lot of difficulty about the idea of choosing to become an OBGYN for a lot of these reasons. So like, this is history that like, in my sort of like, college, like intellectual travels, medical school intellectual travels, I had like happened upon. And like, was kind of similar to you guys, like deeply hurt by, um, you know, like, I think that a lot of us, like, a lot of us who are, you know, women of color, who are people who are invested in social justice, who like think that we're going into medicine in order to like promote social justice, to like help communities like that we grew up in, who, and like to help people like us who we feel like we're marginalized. Um, it can like really be a betrayal to learn about the history of medicine. Um, and so like, so I was like, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm like an intersectional sort of like third world feminist. Like, I don't see how I can be part of this history. And like something that someone said to me around that time when I was like really struggling with that was like the idea that like, you know, OBGYN has been like dominated by men for such a long time, white men for such a long time who like aren't centering our people, aren't centering the people that we care about and the people that we love. And so like being a woman of color who is invested in social justice, who chooses to be an OBGYN is in and of itself a revolutionary act. So then the idea is like, how do you take that frame and kind of like bring it to your practice? And so that was something that I was really trying to figure out um, in residency. And I think like, I think always, and I, um, the people to look to are activists and the activists to look to, especially if you're like thinking about how to integrate reproductive justice into your practice are black women. Like black women will save us all. Like whatever they tell us to do is what we should do. (laughs) That's just like, if I've learned anything in like my life and then in my like OBGYN practice, like they're generally always right. Um, (laughs) And so, And so, like, but that really is powerful. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> and so, for me, like, that is like who that's those are the communities, like, both intellectual, like, oh, can you guys hear me? 
I think it was for Marini. Sorry, I was like, oh, your mic went out. But please oh, continue. Oh, you know. Oh. Yeah, so I was just like, when when Katrina, if it held out on that part, uh, when Katrina mentioned that uh, black women will save us all, it's like, then a good a good part of like feminist history and all that has been around um, the black women that lose. So that's pretty amazing. But anyway, super powerful. Sorry, go ahead. Continue. Continue with your tangent. <laughs> um. What were we talking about? Uh, uh, residency. Oh, 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 okay. Their original question that you guys both had was like, was a like, what are we doing now to, um, to sort of like see, like how, how are we incorporating like reproductive justice principles or like, how are we doing that for, for like patients? Is that yes. right? Yes. Okay. Um, and then the second is like, how are we rebuilding trust? Um, Sorry, I think that I can hear you. Okay. You were quieter for a little while. It could be the internet loves to reset itself. I'm plugged in wirelessly. And that's what's weird because I am pressing up to the mic and I'm like basically kissing it. That's a little mm -hmm. high, but hello. I'll probably figure out the audio. I'll, I'll clip it and boost it another time <laughs> yeah sorry go ahead go ahead that was better oh okay so i guess that's it super enunciate myself that's completely fine go ahead um okay so i i think that if you're like just dipping your toes into reproductive justice mm -hmm. groups to groups to sort of follow our sister song so this is a reproductive ju justice group, sort of like the OG reproductive justice group based out of Atlanta. Um, it was founded by some of the like founding mothers of reproductive justice. And essentially like they are sort of like the hub for all of these different groups that have sort of like branched off. Right. Um, their background is like activism, sort of community organizing, but like as they've sort of like moved along, they've got like they've, um, be really become like a force for sort of like scholarly work around reproductive justice and like their focus is like how do we sort of like hold the medical profession like accountable to the um, to sort of like providing good holistic loving safe care to black mothers with the like understanding that if we can do that, then it sort of like trickles down to everybody else. If you like really help the people who are like at the highest risk of like poor outcomes, right. then like treating them like they're people, like providing them the care that they deserve means that you're providing hopefully everybody else with the same care that they deserve. Right. Um, that, makes so, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> So I think like if you're going to if you're going to like look to any like one or two groups to like sort of see how okay. to like enact reproductive justice in like the medical professional mm -hmm. uh, or like how to like implement it, um, then that's one place to look. The other place is um, Black Mamas Matter Alliance, which is sort of like a related offshoot of um, like Sister Song. That's like a little bit more of an umbrella organization, but has also like kind of like, you know, thrown their hat into the ring 
um, in terms of like becoming one of the foremost sort of like RJ focused um, mm-hmm. like groups and they've pro- they've provided like guidelines for like um, optimal maternal care right. um, they that like different hospitals can follow um, they've they and sister song have sort of like um, organized these like conferences where medical professionals um, activists, just like community members, um, people who like organize communities, social workers, nurses, whoever um, can like come to these conferences, like see what other groups are doing, see how other groups are like enacting reproductive justice, like in their communities and sort of in their practice. Um, This is very vague, but like (laughs) those are, I think some of the different like guiding lights to follow. and then how are we like kind of like implementing it in like a hospital setting? Mm-hmm. It's a little bit, I mean, I think it's a little bit different everywhere. Right. Um, there, I think like the, the biggest way that I've seen reproductive justice groups um, sort of changing medical practice is the same way that like black women have historically been oppressed which is through changes in policy right so in the past like policy surrounding like welfare sometimes like required that a woman be sterilized so that she as like a as like a prerequisite to continuing to get like money to help like her like keep her household afloat that's disgusting. That's a very yeah. terrible incentive. Mm-hmm. A house over your head, or just even be housed in general. Wow, that yeah. is a dark concept. Oy. Yeah. So, like, um, and so if you go from like policies like that, and if you like see that laws like that can be passed, um, then you also know that like you can advocate for laws to be passed that can protect women of color and so that's kind of where they've where like a lot of reproductive justice groups in the last like few years have been like putting a lot of their emphasis um so for example in new york state where i i trained um in residency um they sort of had like this huge reckoning with the high black maternal mortality rate in new york city and there is this like really amazing like group of like uh, that's like run by this black doula um, named Chanel Portia Albert. Um, it's called Ancient Song. Um, and it's basically like an RJ focus, reproductive justice focus um, doula group. And one of the things that Chanel has sort of like, like kind of jumped into as a result of that work um, is sort of like political, like policy activism. And so she was really instrumental in like getting, so one of the things that kind of like came out of like RJ focused sort of scholarly work is the finding that if um, women of color have doulas with them during the labor process, their outcomes are better, Um, less likely to have C-sections, less likely to have sort of like really bad like maternal outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she, she used that data as an argument for getting black women who like usually can't afford doulas. It's usually an out-of-pocket service. 
usually like kind of like reserved for like bougie white women um and like basically and like got them <laughs> and like got them and got them grants to um like have and sort of like retain a black doula during like the antepartum sort of like like perinatal and then like labor process right right um and so like that that's how I'm sort of seeing like RJ being like enacted um in hospitals is like almost on a policy level like in order to like make a big institution do the right thing you essentially have to like make it impossible for them not to do the right thing um spit out receipts spit out receipts yeah like you I mean it really is though yeah Mm -hmm. having like you said uh having data essentially proving that these by having doulas or midwives that are accessible have better outcomes for both mothers and babies so I mean I mean I, I I hate to think that that's what it takes that either big data for it to for policies to happen or big traumas or mm-hmm. things that are problematic and that a lot of people are very upset about and then they take it to the streets or they protest or you know they'll put it on social media and you know hashtags and retweets and shares for days you know mm-hmm. that's uh uh well that's policy making too i mean yeah so that's it has it has a lot to do with like shame honestly like you really have to shame big institutions into doing (laughs) the right thing because otherwise they do shit like you know steal cells from your cervical cancer and like Mm -hmm. and profit on it forever and Mm -hmm. profit off her especially or not from it yeah i there's uh I know this is not necessarily for about uh, about women, like just reproductive health. I know there's, I keep forgetting the name. I should know this name. I think the two of us at least would know or people who uh, know history of, med- of medicine or biology, uh, that one unnamed individual whose cell's been used uh, for cancer or to mm-hmm. stem cells, that, that individual. I need to look yeah. it up later. I'll put it on the link below. I was like, Henrietta Lacks. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> The, the those cells ah cells right mm-hmm. like Helo that with, yeah without her without her knowledge so there's mm-hmm. that and well now that she's famous for that now but not for that and my computer told me i'm almost out of storage space it's okay i have backups and backups of days don't worry about it but i mean other than that like other than shaming institutions uh in your perspective do you think now trust is stronger now between patient and doctors in cases like this or it's still a little I guess it depends on who you ask or I really think yeah I mean I really think it depends um I mean like right now I so I work at LA County like one of the biggest obviously like public hospitals in the country right right um and when we talk about like communities not having trust in a hospital like Mm -hmm. look no further right like LA County is like notorious for being a place where we used to sterilize women without their consent 
Oh, <laughs> there's a whole, there's a whole like dark, terrible history of mm-hmm. like, you know, LA County OBGYNs like taking uteruses, taking fallopian tubes, but right. it, it obviously like the effect is the same like rendering women infertile, like unable mm-hmm. to have children and especially like Mexican women mm-hmm. um, and other like people in the LA sort of Latinx community. And like, obviously what this has led to is like really deep, like mistrust of mm-hmm. um, LA County. Um, and so like, how, how do you repair, how do you atone for the sins of people who like came before you yeah and like how do you like kind of build bridges um I don't know that anybody has a great answer for that well what about for you though how do you since you said you struggled a little bit with those things like when you were a student right and then now have you Mm -hmm. reconciled with some of those traumatic histories of your predecessors right your colleagues and everything before you have you feel like you reconcile with some of those things or do you still feel a little like we'll we'll put like like, tortured by it I mean I think that I think that the guilt is always there because like Mm -hmm. it's because like similar to my predecessors like my knowledge base is built on the bodies and the labor of like black and brown women like Mm-hmm. I think like that's something to state plainly and I think that's something to always like center right, when you're right. like, sort of thinking about like who you are as a doctor mm-hmm. um like does that mean that I walk into like the rooms of like my patients who are like primarily black and brown women and say like oh my god I'm so sorry like when, <laughs> no, I, no, no. when they're like when they're there for their pap smear no that no. would be terrible no conversation <laughs> to start with like could hey, you imagine name, like hey my name is <laughs> Katrina, by the way, I'm sorry I'm going to do this. This is probably very invasive from your ass. Blah, blah, blah. That's a, that's a different type of word bomb yeah. that shouldn't yeah. happen in the room. Probably, probably not helpful. No, no, no. no. Um, <laughs> and so I think like you, I think that you sort of like come at it from a place of like honesty, understanding, like treating people like people. Mm-hmm. Um, I like in my day-to-day practice, you know, I like counsel patients on all their options. Like a patient will come into um, the office to come and see me and they might not be sure that they want to continue a pregnancy. And so instead, like, it isn't my job to decide what is right for them. And Mm -hmm. so like, an RJ focused or sort of an RJ centered, like way to counsel is like, what do you want? Like, what are your priorities? Like, what do you want your life to look like in five years? What do you want it to look like in 10 years? Mm -hmm. Is like raising a child right now part of that. Mm -hmm. And if it is like, how do you think you might be able to do that? Do you need resources? Do you need people Mm -hmm. to talk to? Like what, like essentially like one of the things about sort of a doctor patient interaction is that like you're taking a patient out of, you're taking a person, like a whole person out of an environment that they are usually like the boss of and putting Mm -hmm. them into an environment with a very unequal power structure. Like you're the doctor, this is your house. Like they're coming in and you're telling them what you have to offer and they can either like take it or leave it. And so like really trying to like equalize that power structure a little bit more to like 
you are somebody who's like coming here but like I know that you're a person outside of the hospital or outside of the clinic like who is that person and like how can I make that person's life better with what I'm able to offer you Mm -hmm. it's like a different way to sort of like think about a patient doctor Mm -hmm. interaction and then like come to sort of a shared decision about what might work best Mm -hmm. so so that's that's actually something that I'd like to talk a little bit more about because when at least when I was growing when I think about going to the doctors at least with my parents at the time it's like like you said you're there in your house you're you're the person in charge, you know better than I do. So take mm-hmm. your word for it. And then if not, I'm an idiot for not taking your word for it. But then like you said, now that you're looking at someone as a complete whole, that it's not just now they have other people to look after, they have a different persona at work, and that you both come to a shared decisions I think that's incredibly important at least when I think about looking for second opinions or looking for options options should be explored and I would love and I would like to hope that all doctors not just um, people in OBGYN but any doctor who's consulting a patient who has questions um, to really come to shared informed decisions otherwise it could it can make a lot more people's lives easier, less, I could assume, less lawsuits in the future, and then less, uh, I guess, less heartache, depending on, like, what services are offered, depending on what uh, medical practice that you're in. So I think that's pretty important. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm just hearing that was really reassuring, because I feel like almost, I think almost all of the people that I know that have interacted with doctors have hated them. <laughs> and that kind of hurts because I'm, you know, like I'm someone that like really believes in medicine and, and mm-hmm. science and it breaks my heart knowing that they feel like they're not seen. And these are people that are really important to me. And when they don't feel like they're important and that their health isn't taken seriously, like it, it really just like breaks my heart. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm also like at that, at that point where I'm like, okay, if I were to be in this practice, like how am I, how would I go about approaching this, making sure that my patients feel if, you know, in the future feel seen. So it's nice to know that there are people that, um, and there are medical professionals that are really like working on um, having that patient uh, professional interaction and that you guys care and that you, <laughs> there are people yeah. out there who care. just hearing that is like really just, I'm just like, oh God, it's like, just like a breath of fresh air kind of. Um, but I do have like a question on that as well. Um, are there more, like, I know that there is like more like, un, like there's like training on like biases and like how to address um, biases. Um, is that something that is like primarily in more, I don't want to say like progressive states, but uh, I mean, like, is it, happening in some areas more than others or is it is it something like required by medical schools like I don't really know how like medical schools and medical institutions like function if they're all like very separate or there's like specific guidelines they have to go by stuff like that yeah that's a good question guys um there's so there's like uh, it's interesting because 
like we're having this conversation at a time when the medical field is like really having a reckoning with race. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I only say that now because the Twitter Twitter is going a little crazy about it. Students of Ethical Admissions, S-E-S-E-A, is been very pokey to admission boards of different medical schools about like you said the ideas of race and how you could prevent certain biases for that but that's just on that's just on that topic um, oh my god i have something to say about this but i'll come back to it later oh, um, are you sure right yeah, now, yeah, yeah say, it. It say it say it oh, okay um i was i heard from um i don't know if i had to specifically do this but it was something like related to this um i was talking to a like recently graduated um, medical student. He's in his residency right now. And he's um, also a person of color, he's black. And I was uh, talking to him about like how medical school admissions go. And I was just like, well, what happens if there are like, you have an answer that is, that someone doesn't like because they're like white. Like, do you know you guys know what I'm saying? Like if you're, if you're, because, you know, sometimes older white folk, particular gentlemen, don't like, like to hear those things. And I've been in positions where I've, I had to restrict what I say because of where I was in, if that, like the position that I was in, that I was surrounded by a group that I know that would highly disagree with me, but I needed them to be on my side into, in order to advance forward. And I asked him, like, how do you approach those situations? He's just like, look, I'm not one to censor myself. I'm never one to censor myself. If I feel, or if my white colleagues feel uncomfortable for, for me calling them out, that's their problem. It's definitely not mine. And I've never gotten in trouble for it. And he's like, if you ever feel uncomfortable in a medical, um, like an interview for a medical school or something like that, that you can always request another interviewer or another um, interview. If you feel like, hey, this person, um, might not like what I say, or they have, they may have something against me, or like they, or not something against you, but you don't feel comfortable with that interviewer, that you can always request another one. That was just a tip for anyone who had. Oh, see, that's perfect. Yeah. I have an interview in December, so that is something to think about. And Yeah, that's what he told me. He was definitely like, you know, if you know that you don't feel comfortable for what, whatever reason, or you feel like you know that you're going to be a target because of what you said. <laughs> That you could always request someone else and then I was just like oh that's cool it's really good to know but that was that bit but <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say I'll pocket that for later because there <laughs> there has been talks of well, well we're just transitioning the mess now but I'm just saying like but there there have been talks where there is a group interview of predominantly white uh, med students to be and then there's like one or two personal color could be like someone from you know Filipino X Latinx and then there's um, the black community itself and then it's a little awkward to say the least because there's a lot of questions about race it's like oh, how do you feel about this right this is these are such some interview questions that are posted online so people just take it and then they practice their response it's kind of funny to see that like they're saying it as if you know they are holistic and uh they care and they're not discriminatory and then it's like are you like are you sure like are you sure these admission boards are following through but before we go off into static uh, katrina what were you going to say before you let jazz take the floor there oh i don't even remember the question <laughs> uh <okay>. let me <laughs> let me rewind back before we got into uh talk about medical school uh 
It was like how is like how are medical schools and like um the medical institutions uh, trying to address bias. Oh, there it is. Right, yeah, biases or racial biases. Honestly, this is a little bit of like a soapbox of mine. Um, but we're like, all for soapboxes. <laughs> long story short, not well. <laughs> <laughs> Long story short, um, not well. Your opinion or your perspective, yes. <laughs> Go well, on. I'm guessing um, not like the same. There's no like standard for it. I'm guessing across. Yeah, no. there isn't a standard for it. Um, Tips P. Certainly, like oh, we had been talking a little bit about like race. Um, certainly, like with the. I feel like medicine has like recently taken like a big step forward for them in that like they're finally like acknowledging that like race is a social construct rather than a biological one. Okay. Like you're still taught in medical school that like, I don't know, like Filipino people are more likely to have diabetes, like black people are more likely to like have high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And that like these things like that, like, with like the implication that these things are um, like biological, have like a biological basis rather than like a socio-cultural, socioeconomic Mm -hmm. basis. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, the the idea that racism rather than race is responsible for health inequity is like still something that is like quite new in like sort of mainstream medical circles but like okay. is finally gaining some traction mm-hmm. um i feel like this is a podcast where like if i'm saying those things like i'm kind of preaching to the choir like you know like mm-hmm. a a beautiful little like baby <laughs> doesn't like pop out of the womb like I'm predisposed <laughs> to like developing like diabetes or something like that you know like that is that a thing <laughs> that was a little adorable <laughs> come out I'm but, ready to talk about my predisposed uh <laughs> illnesses and everything else in between but yes mm-hmm. so it's new in yeah it's new and so they're still trying to figure out how to do it mm-hmm. and like uh, it's I I almost feel like right now it's trendy to mm-hmm. like talk about implicit bias it's trendy to talk about how like race affects like medical care um and like medical outcomes mm-hmm. um but the depth to which people are doing it certainly differs. Um, and the like effectiveness with which people are doing it definitely differs. So for example, like I, so I went to Penn State and it's one of the first medical schools that had like a uh, hello? Is there anyone there? Can you guys hear me? I can hear you. Your face just went. Okay. <laughs> oh, there you Did go. Did I freeze? Okay. Oh, okay. You guys yeah, hear there me? There you go. Yeah, so you were okay. mentioning UPenn. You're in UPenn. I was at, so I was at Penn State. It's one of the first places with a like human a medical humanities program, and as part of the medical humanities program, they did like a curriculum on the social determinants of health. I was like, this is great! Like, 
they're going to be talking about like the sort of like social determinants that like create like bad outcomes for our patients like this will be awesome context right and like and like at this point guys like this is what 12 years ago so I'm like dating myself a little bit um (laughs) 12 years maybe more but like uh well (laughs) when you were having these talks (laughs) (laughs) so like I mean arguably they were sort of ahead of their time Mm -hmm. but I like remember getting like being pretty excited about this class and then like getting our first like thing of like worksheets to like sort of work through in preparation for the discussion Uh oh am I frozen again no you're fine okay Mm -hmm. um I would like got the first like set of worksheets and they were like really terrible like reductionist um Uh. it was like a reductionist kind of like understanding of um of like what cultural like differences in medical care could be like I can remember to this day the thing that like made me go off um it was like a it was a scenario about like this um I think she was like a Chinese woman who didn't speak very much English who had like a new cancer diagnosis and then her like son stops you in the hallway and says like don't tell my mom she has cancer and like so it was like, uh, it was not written well, first of all, yeah. it like, um, it was like incredibly stereotypical, the way that it was written, the way that mo- the mom was written, the way that the son was written was incredibly stereotypical. Yeah. Okay. And like really fed into a lot of like misconceptions about sort of like Asian American end of life care um, and like what that might look like and like how you should sort of like respond and react to it Mm -hmm. and so I also have never been one to censor myself and I went off yeah yeah because I was just like I was like I would have said like whoa whoa." (laughs) what are you doing and so like I was really upset about it it really like I I just remember like being you know like I don't remember 21 years old and like walking up and down like the hallways looking for my classmates and being like do not respond to this like it is racist like blah 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 um and like because it was and like the (laughs) but the thing that like was even more frustrating was that like when we convened as an entire class to like talk through the scenario, like in a lot of people had like written in like, you know, this is like really stereotypical, like this is pretty offensive. And like, instead of, you know, like the the facilitators, the professor saying like, oh, this, like you guys are bringing up good points. Like this is really reductionist. Like we are playing into stereotypes. Like how could we have made this scenario better? Like what could we have done? They were really defensive. They were like, we got this from this like textbook that is like the textbook for like the social determinants and like this has been vetted by like these like experts and like wow. this is a, an exercise for like this kind of thing and so like from like one of my earliest exposures in medical school I was like this like diversity stuff this um like 
implicit bias stuff, all of these things that they're trying to do in medical school is like some BS, like they're not doing it well. Mm. And like it felt very much like they were doing it to sort of like tick off boxes rather than than to actually give proper full-rounded education Mm -hmm. from 12 years ago since you said you just finished up your residency earlier this year right Uh, Mm -hmm. earlier you think has that changed I would like to think it changed I honestly don't know um (laughs) that that deep sigh like has it really I don't know I think that they're I think that there are like people who are more invested in it. There are probably people who are more comfortable with it than mm. it, than they were then. Um, has that translated to like more more admissions for people of color to medical school? Maybe like Maybe. not really. Like, do people of colors like in medical school feel seen and safe and like feel like they can seek out mentors? and feel like they aren't being like you know people aren't being prejudiced prejudiced to them while they're on teams no like that's not better <laughs> like none of that's better um oh, and like it, and is it resulting in better outcomes for patients which like ultimately is what we're looking at no right. it isn't mm. so like are 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 medical schools and medical institutions making more of an effort to like promote equity and like justice sometimes um but is it right is it effective I would say no Mm, well that's one thing to look at (laughs) I'm just sorry uh I just realized I'm just looking at the time like this is really (laughs) long but no, no no it's not it's not a bad thing only because since we were talking about very intentional and specific talks about things like reproductive justice I think the time is important so we could not censor ourselves for when we're not cutting corners so since you are giving a little bit more description on where these histories go and what we could look forward to in the future like you said uh, with what should our medical systems even you know teaching future doctors right or other medical professionals down the line um, they could do a little bit more of an effort but it's going and you can uh, you acknowledge that it's going and hopefully it could come sooner rather than much much later but i'm gonna go ahead and start to wrap up this episode uh jazz you have any last final thoughts on today's episode oh any last questions for katrina uh about anything that we have talked today or some Okay, so the recording just died on me because apparently I have no hard drive space. <laughs> That's okay. That's future me to worry about. Um, I'm going to get this recording after. So like I said, find our last closing thoughts, ironically, at the end. <laughs> Jazz, do you have any last last remarks or questions uh, for Katrina? before? Yeah, definitely. I have two things to say. First things first, always listen to Black women. They're not here to steer you wrong. They're here to steer you in the right direction. Just believe them whenever you can. Amen. Um, <laughs> and uh the second thing uh is more of like a question for dr katrina hirana um, <laughs> um is uh in terms of reproductive justice just like kind of as briefly as you can what does that mean is that inclusive of aftercare like is that 
does that encompass what care looks like afterwards when you have um when you like after you give birth and like raising the child um what what does that look like uh trying to advocate for those things i mean i like there's this so if any of you are interested in reading a little bit more about reproductive justice, I feel like this book is a really good intro. So it's literally called Reproductive Justice, an Introduction. Um, and it's written by Loretta Ross, who's one of the sort of like founding mothers of RJ, as well mm -hmm. as um, Ricky Solinger, who also wrote some of like the foundational like text about reproductive justice. Mm -hmm. There's something in here that I marked because I really liked it. And I think like it allows um ooh, if I can find it um I can't find it then that's okay <laughs> but basically like the the idea um that I'm like trying to find but apparently I'm not able to find in this book right now um I want to find it because it is really good. No worries. Hmm. <laughs> Can you imagine you're running through a book and then it's well worn and the pages are yellow. You must have read it quite often. <laughs> That's um, just okay. You... There you go. <laughs> I found it. So okay. I think like the thing to like take away from reproductive justice is that it isn't just about reproduction and I think that's what you were like alluding to Jazz but I really like this because it says like reproductive justice is the application of the concept of intersectionality to reproductive politics in order to achieve human rights and so if you guys are familiar with the concept of intersectionality it's a concept that's coined by um, Kimberly Crenshaw who's a legal scholar over here at UCLA Mm -hmm. um, but basically what it is saying is that like people come to like every experience, like with all of these different intersections of identity. So like their gender, their race, their socioeconomic status, their education, their ability, mm -hmm. um, and all of those things play into like the way that they're able to interact with the world. And so when you take an intersectional lens and you apply it to reproduction, what you're actually saying is that like a person's ability to reproduce, a, par a person's ability to parent or not parent if they decide that they want to is like intimately connected to literally everything else around them. Like a black woman who is like raising a black boy in like a neighborhood is like, is going like for, for that family unit, um, we need to be advocating for, you know, like, police reform or police abolition, depending on where you are on that spectrum. Mm -hmm. We need to be act, act, advocating for like prison reform. We need to be advocating for education reform because all of those things affect her ability to parent that child and to get okay. that baby from like point, like cute little baby, like that came out of the womb to like a man who is able to like live his life to his full potential. Wow. That's a powerful quote and a powerful soapbox. <laughs> I just, I'm just poking fun, just poking fun. Um, yes, exactly what I wanted to hear, though. I was like, just waiting for this answer. <laughs> yes. No, honestly, it, it really is a lot like that. When we put, when we try to take care of a lot of different aspects of someone's world, we do make them better if we give them the tools for. Otherwise, we just leave them 
like fish in the water just leaving dangling out there and then they can't swim and we don't want that especially for for human beings to reach again like their full potential to strive to do bigger better greater things and to make the world a better place but that's that's just me but uh so for my my last thoughts is that thank you again i'm gonna use your full name is like dr katrina hirana thank you so much for giving us literally two hours of your time i know you're super super busy but thank you for sitting in with the two of us and sharing uh a little bit more about your profession and the OBGYN. i know it's very general and i know it's very introductory but uh I think it's great for our viewers to know that this is something that we should acknowledge and that we should learn and that we should take some extra time in our day to probably take a look at some of these things. Uh, otherwise, again, we're just censoring ourselves. We don't know, then we become ignorant and then we can't be upset. Um, we should, we're, we're gonna react negatively. We're gonna react badly if these things are brought up and then we just don't know. And that's uh, that's just my end, but uh yeah and then thank you jazz for hopping in i know we had a really late start <laughs> we we're supposed to do this early in the morning but you know things happen but it worked out we still got it done so hooray <laughs> uh, and lastly to our viewers so this episode was recorded on monday november 23rd 2020 uh however i will not post it on this week because it's thanksgiving holiday uh well we'll put that word loosely uh, we all know that thanksgiving is a little hmm, i don't know how to put it <laughs> this year. yeah it's both those both those words there it's <laughs> this land is not our own especially in the united states it belongs to other people who were here before us and we have taken away from them so but we all for the people who acknowledge that already and are using thanksgiving time to spend time with friends and family do that but also it's like if you are don't congregate oh. please don't congregate uh if you could keep yourself distance you know zoom phone calls facetime and all of that just so we don't uh enlarge the curve that we're in we're purple tier in california so let's not let's not make it any worse please uh that's just my soapbox that but uh other than that's it and um actually uh, we're gonna bring our hands together, or at least you and me, Doctor <laughs> Katrina. <laughs> we're gonna go ahead and end this podcast uh, after. And I need to take a picture with everybody here, Jazz. That means I need to see your face too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Okay. And then um, anything else, um, Doctor? Before we no. head off. Thank you for having me, you guys. You're welcome. All right. So till then, we'll see you after the Thanksgiving holiday for more. Uh, episodes hopefully all right in three two one and we're done so I could finally edit this in peace all right so does anyone have a mac or something they could take pictures with oh turtleneck crew oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you're muted jazz oh I have Mac. How do I take a? Is it Command Shift Four? I think it is. Right? Is that how you do that? I don't. I don't have a Mac. I I've been asking Jessica to do it lately. I think it is. I think Command Shift Three is like the whole screen, uh -huh. and Four is like you can select the screen. Gotcha. Can you guys believe that I've owned a Mac for five years or six years, and I still don't know how to use it? Okay. <laughs> it's five. 
Maurice, what do you want? Do you want like the small? Do you just want like the, this like the what's it called? The zoom screen, or do you want the? Whole